0: Welcome to uh, my presentation on Patents 101. My name is Jeff Sears. I'm the University's Chief Patent Counsel. I have an office over in Low Library and on a day-to-day basis I work with university researchers faculty, postdocs, grad students, sometimes undergrads, on the patent process. And we talk about whether an invention is patentable, whether we might want to patent it, and why might we want to patent it. I'm going to give you some background on patents. Please feel free to ask questions as we go along. And during the presentation, I will be referring to this handout patent. If you don't have one, there are copies in the back. I always like to choose something very timely and uh, as we approach October 31 this appears to be a really timely patent and this is an actual issued United States patent. It is not a joke, it is real. Uh, Let's see, take a quick look here. Okay, what is a patent? There's a couple of different ways you can define a patent. One of the ways you can define it is a monopoly A monopoly is a a right that only you have, and a patent is, in some sense, a monopoly. It's an exclusive right to do something. A patent is also an intangible asset. If you are in finance, you're familiar with a balance sheet. Your balance sheet might have cash, it might have other forms of securities, stocks, bonds. It might also have inventory. Patent is property. It's intellectual property. It goes on the balance sheet as an intangible asset. It's also a legal right to exclude competition. It's a right to prevent folks from doing something. We'll go through exactly what a patent is shortly. So let's take a look at a real patent. And it is this patent right here. Every patent looks exactly the same. You start with a title page. Looks like this. You will see in the upper left, the title of the patent, Halloween Portable Container. You will see underneath the title, the name of the inventor, Linda Acosta. You will also see in box 22, about halfway down the left column, the filing date, May 14, 2007. And you will see the issue date, September 29, 2009. The time period between filing an issue here is about two and a half years. Do you think that's a long period or a short period? Sure, it turns out this is very fast for the Patent Office. This is the Patent Office moving very quickly. It's a government agency. When you think of the Patent Office you can think about going to the Department of Motor Vehicles here in New York City and waiting in line because that's exactly how the Patent Office operates. It's on a queue system. You also have on the front page an abstract, a really short description of what the invention is about. And then you open it up and the first page you get to is a drawing. Drawings are really helpful. They're really helpful to figuring out what a patent is about. If you're not sure what a patent is directed to, take a quick look at the title page, take a quick look at the title, and then open it up to the drawings. Here we have mechanical drawings, but it doesn't necessarily have to be mechanical drawings. This is an invention for a mechanical object. The invention could be an electrical circuit. It could be a set of instructions to be carried out by a computer, so it could be a flow chart. It could be a gene sequence. It could be a chemical composition. It could be any of those things. You take a look at the drawings and you see figure one. That's a front view of the object. You see figure two is another view, and you go forward to the text eventually. A few pages in, you see the text. Patents are all paginated in exactly the same way. They have column numbers up at the top and line numbers down the middle. There are no page numbers to patents. If you want to refer to a portion of a patent, you refer to a column number and a line number. For example, column 1, line 10 is where begins a section called Background of the Invention. I'm going to read a little bit from this patent to give you a feel for how patents are written. And I'm going to start reading at column 1, line 22. Typically, children collect confections in containers such as bag, back, bags, backpacks, cases, duffel bags, handbags, knapsacks, pillowcases, and even the popular orange plastic pail resembling a pumpkin. Let's pause there for a moment. Typically children collect confections and containers. People don't talk like this. No one talks like this. A patent attorney's right like this. Why do we say confections and containers? Because if we said candy, candy is a very narrow term. It's very narrow. It means something particular. But confections are very broad. It covers candy, it covers pastries, it could cover pretzels, it could cover a whole range of things. Moving on. As more confections are received, and I'm just reading the next line, the container becomes weighted and difficult to carry or transport from house to house. Has anyone had this problem? you got so much candy trick-or-treating, you can't carry your pumpkin. Again, continuing, additionally, the containers traditionally used do not have a cover, such as a lid, to prevent the confections from falling out of the container or becoming damaged from weather elements, such as rain. Again, people don't talk like this. Patent attorneys write like this for a reason. I like to call this style of writing double jargon. It's two layers of jargon. The first layer is a technology jargon. Patents are describing inventions. Inventions are related to technology. There's usually a field. This is a mechanical object, but it doesn't have to be. Everyone in the field knows certain terms of art. If this were an electrical circuit, it would probably have transistors, resistors, capacitors, all those other wonderful elements. The patent wouldn't explain what those are. It would just use the terminology. And if you don't know what the terminology is, you're lost immediately. The technical jargon. That's the first layer. The second layer is the legal jargon. This is a legal document. It's typically written by a lawyer. It's reviewed by an examiner who's not a lawyer but who's a technical expert and eventually it will be argued over by other lawyers and potentially reviewed by a judge who's also a lawyer. A lot of lawyers in this process. It has a lot of legal Do not be surprised if when you start to read your first patent You cannot make heads or tails of it and you're lost after a few sentences. This would be completely normal, nothing to worry about. You will get better at it over time. Let's continue to look at the parts of this patent. We have the field of the invention right here. This is a section that doesn't say much, you can throw it away. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you about a lot of sections you can just throw away when you read this patent. Field of the invention, you can throw it away. Background, you can also throw it away. I just read you a couple of sentences from the background. The background is there to act as a pitch to the examiner, to explain to the examiner what the problem is in the art, and in patents we use the word art a lot. Art means technology. It means the field. What the problem is in the art that needs to be solved. It's kind of a dumb problem. It's real, but it's dumb. Containers that are too heavy to carry and containers that don't have any protection from the weather. It's a spin. It's advertising. You can ignore it. Summary of the invention, definitely throw it away. Very heavy legalese. So, so far, I've, I've uh, suggested to you, you can throw away all of column one and pretty much all of column two. Now we're down at column two, line 65. You do not want to throw away the brief description of the drawings. You should spend a moment on it, especially if you cannot figure out what's in the drawings. Now, I happen to be pretty good at reading mechanical drawings. I've been doing it for a long time, but sometimes they are not easy. And you might be looking at it and saying to yourself, don't know, do not know what you're showing me in this drawing. And you will see in the brief description, "Ah," and this is not what it says here, but it's just an example of what it could say. Figure 3 is a cross-section of the drawing of figure 1 along line AA. Makes it all clear. Ah, now I know what you're showing me. We move next to the detailed description of the embodiments, or just called the detailed description. This begins in column 3, line 10. And the claims, which begins at column 4, line 65. These are two places you definitely want to spend some time on. And we will take a closer look at it as we move forward. Let's pause for a moment to ask ourselves what you can do with a patent everyone familiar with the program Shark Tank? You've probably seen at least one episode where one shark has asked one of the entrepreneurs, do you have a patent? And if the entrepreneur is at all prepared the answer had best be yes. Something I'll tell you on Shark Tank is there's only three things you can do with a patent. There's only three things. You can sell it, you can rent it, or you can use it. That's it there's no other options. Selling it, sometimes that comes up on Shark Tank. This is where a shark says to the entrepreneur I just want to buy the patent. I want to buy your business, I want to buy the patent. That's it, a patent's a piece of property, you can sell it and that's it. End of story. You can rent it. When we talk about patents, we usually don't talk about rent. But here's the way to think about it. You've probably all rented apartments at some point. When you rent an apartment, you sign a document called a lease. A lease is a legal document in which the owner of the apartment gives you the right to live in it. Patents work very similarly. When you have a patent, you can give someone the right to practice your patent. It's called a license. And money will change hands. You will agree upon the terms of the exchange. It's just like renting an apartment. Renting an apartment, same thing as licensing a patent. And then you can use your patent to launch a new company, to start your new venture. When you own this patent, remember what I said at the first slide, you have a legal right to exclude competition. Let me put a little more meat on that. If you own this patent, you have the exclusive right to prevent anyone else from practicing the invention. State that in slightly other words. You have the exclusive right, means it's yours and yours alone, to prevent anyone else from doing five things. Making the invention, selling the invention, using the invention, offering the invention for sale, or importing the invention into the US. Those are your five rights. Make, use, sell, offer for sale, and import. But there's an important word in front of those. You have the exclusive right to prevent anyone else from doing that. It doesn't mean that you yourself have that right. That's not going to make a lot of sense. It's okay. Let it sit there for a moment. The key thing to remember is it's a right to prevent. It's a right to exclude competition. And this is really the best context in which patents arise in Shark Tank. You have a new company or a small company and they want to use this patent to keep competition out. They want to use it to ensure that no one else can make the product. No one else can sell the product that they are making or selling. So how do you get a patent? Well, if you're a new company, what you do is you start with your business plan. You ask yourself, what am I doing that's going to make myself successful? What am I doing that is going to make myself better than the competition? Cheaper, faster, more desirable, higher quality product. Under the law you can patent anything under the sun made by humans. Three exceptions. You cannot patent laws of nature, you cannot patent natural phenomena, and you cannot patent abstract ideas. Generally don't worry about those. Put those to the side. If you have a composition it could be a drug, it could be some sort of chemical composition, like a cream you put on your hands. You could patent that. You can patent a manufacturer, which is basically a product. You could practice the machine you can patent the machine, which is a device for making other things, and you can patent a method, which is a way of doing something. All of those are patentable. So why don't we walk through an actual hypo? Any questions about what a patent is and what the sections of a patent are? Nope. Okay. Let's walk through a hypo on how you might protect a New Ventures product. Pizza. New York City is a great city for pizza. There's a lot of thin crust pizza, there's deep dish, there's a variety of pizza. We could take a poll on the best pizza in New York City, but you know what? We don't even need to take that poll because we're all going to agree it's Grimaldi's. Right. Right. If you've ever gotten delivery pizza, you have most likely experienced an invention. Have you ever asked yourself how, the, how you prevent the inside of the upper lid of the box? Notice I don't say the top of the box. I say the inside of the upper lid of the box. Have you ever asked yourself how you prevent that part of the box from coming in contact with the cheese, making a gooey mess? That's right. That's right, you use a package saver. It's called a package saver. There's a lot of them out there. One of them looks just like this. The next time you order delivery pizza, look for it. This is the object you probably threw away, never thought about it. It's actually patented. It's been patented many, many times over. But here's one. It's called the package saver. But it's not the only variety. There's one that looks like this, a little triangular object. I collect these from time to time. We'll see if I can balance them up here. Be great. <laughs> and there's one that looks like this. Got some got some vents in it, which is very nice. I can make a good story about this one. Let's leave that there. And it turns out, if you do a search in the patent database, two places you could go for the patent database, you could go to Google.com backslash patents or you go to uspto.gov. USPTO is an acronym means United States Patent and Trademark Office. It is the official government agency that grants patents. You can go to either of those websites and you can search on patents and you can find anything that was patented. And if you search with the keyword package saver, you'll come up with a lot of things that look just like this. And here's another one of them. Here's another one. You can imagine you are an entrepreneur working on a new venture and you start thinking about the package saver business and you start thinking, hmm, how many delivery pizzas are sold just in New York City in a given year? It's probably close to, I'm going to just ballpark it, on the order of a million. And that's probably way low as a number. And you figure each one of those boxes has something like this. Hmm. Maybe if you came up with a new version of something like this and you took over that market you might have a path to riches. You might, you might because even if you sold this for a cent or a tenth of a cent, a tenth of a cent times a big enough number becomes really large. So you start thinking about these objects and you start thinking, hmm, I wonder if I can do it better. I wonder if there's a better way to do it. And you come up with this object. This is an actual patented object. It's very similar to this with two differences. It's contoured on the top. You can see it's just not round. It has a particular contoured shape. And it has a hole in a particular location. And the legs, the legs are the same as before except one of them has a serrated edge. This particular device solves a very interesting problem. It solves two problems. First, it keeps the top of the box from coming in contact with the cheese. And second, it solves this problem. Imagine that when you get your delivery pizza, the pieces are all stuck together. When the pizza left the store, the, the pizza maker didn't use that rolling knife to cut the slices apart. Well, how would you get the slices apart? You'd have to use a serrated edge, and in this hypothetical, let's assume you don't have any serrated edges in your house because you've gotten this delivery pizza in Central Park or someplace else, no problem. You can put your thumb through the hole. It's contoured to fit your hand, and you can use that serrated edge to cut one slice from the other. Actual patented object. I've never seen one of these. Has anyone seen one of these? not surprising. Okay, so how do we start? Let's imagine this is our invention, this is our solution, this is our path to riches. How do we start the patent process? Well, we have an invention. In the patent space when we talk about inventions, we talk about solutions to problems that work for their intended purpose. You will hear the word invention in the popular press used in many different ways, usually wrong. Henceforth, when you hear the word invention, think solution to problem that works. It does not have to work well. The problem does not have to be of great importance. Remember, this is a patented invention. This is a Halloween pumpkin on wheels with a cover. It solves a problem. It solves two problems. The bar is really low really low to be patent eligible. So you have a solution to a problem. You can consider filing a patent application and you can actually start the process very cheaply. You can file what we call a provisional patent application in the patent office. The opening charge, it's going to be around $1,000. You've got to have at least $1,000 to spend. This is bargain basement price. If you don't have 1000 to spend, there's really no way to get into the patent system. Someone invariably asks me, can you do it yourself? Yes, you can do it yourself. You can file your own patent application. It's fine. Just like you can do your own plumbing. You can do your own electrical work. You can also survey your piece of land if you want to. It's not recommended. Very easy to make mistakes. And in the patent system when mistakes are made, generally they cannot be corrected. So usually you hire a patent attorney patent attorneys bill out by the hour, you can expect to spend at least a thousand bucks. If you don't have a thousand, you're not getting into the patent system. But once you file it, you can brand yourself patent pending. That's all patent pending means. Patent pending means I filed a patent application on this invention in some country in the world. means nothing else. And I should tell you Remember, we talked about filing date, May 14, 2007, and issue date, September 29, 2009. You do not have any rights until you are issued. No rights until issued. So while you are pending, you have no rights at all. Patent pending, therefore, has no legal force. It's purely an advertising game. It's advertising to the public Public likes patent pending and thinks, ooh, must be special. must be new and improved. I should buy it. It's also a warning to the competition. Do you really want to rip this off? Because someday, God willing, and if I'm lucky enough, I'll have an issued patent. And then I can use it to prevent you from practicing my invention. So go rip off someone else's. That's how we start. Uh, just a question about when you're at the stage, uh, yes. Yes, it is. It is. I'm not sure if my deck has a a part on what we call bar dates, so let me take this question now. It's a great question. Every patent system in the world has a clock and the clock determines whether patent rights are available. Certain things you do will jeopardize your right to file for a patent. Here is a typical example in the US. You have one year from the date of your first public disclosure of the invention to file a patent application. Now, public disclosure, that's attorney jargon. I know what it means. Let me tell you what it means. Public disclosure means anytime you publicly communicate information about your invention, you're starting a one-year clock. So if you go to a conference, and that conference potentially could be attended by a member of the public, you've created a one-year date. If you sell your invention, If you use your invention in public, if you publish it on your blog, if you publish it online, if you publish it in print, anytime the public has access to your invention, you have a one-year clock that starts to run. You must file your patent application within that one year. If you don't, your rights are forever lost. Grant proposals also potentially trigger a clock. Usually they're not public. Usually they're not confidential. It's a different type of clock. So let me wrap up the public disclosure clock. In the U.S. we think about public disclosures. Because the U.S. says you have a year from your first public disclosure to file. What about the rest of the world? The rest of the world is much more severe. The rest of the world says you have no grace period. You must file by the date of your first non-confidential disclosure. I'm throwing a lot of terms out at you. Let's break them down. A disclosure is non-confidential. A communication is non-confidential if it involves at least two people and there's no agreement to keep it secret. So how do grant agencies operate? If they're private, like the Gates Foundation and a variety of other private foundations, you can read through the terms and the terms usually say somewhere this submission is not confidential. That means as soon as you hit the send button, you have non-confidentially disclosed your invention. If you do not file a patent application on it today in Europe, Japan, and other countries around the world, then tomorrow your patent rights in those countries are lost. You will still have rights available in the US because the US cares about public disclosures. A public disclosure is a much higher bar than non-confidential. Non-confidential could be two people. Public requires an access to everyone. So what's the general suggestion? It's this. If you have a solution to a problem, if you have interesting research results, something that took you time to get, something that's unexpected, surprising, if you have those, before you publish, before you present, before you submit a grant application, talk to someone who knows the patent process. You could talk to me. I'm free, I work for Columbia. As long as you're Columbia, I'm free to you. You could talk to Columbia Technology Ventures, the university's tech transfer office. This is the office who works with inventors to get licensing transactions, to convert research to products. And we can determine whether we need to file a patent application. We never ask you to change your timetable. We just ask what your timetable is. I can tell you fairly frequently faculty will approach us and say, going to a conference today, what do you think? I say to myself, would it have been nice to know about this a little sooner, buddy? But okay, we will file a patent application today. Because once I'm filed, I don't have to worry about what I disclose. Anything I have filed, I can disclose thereafter without creating any sort of jeopardy to myself. What if you have uh, an invention and you didn't patent it yet, but you want to pitch it to, say, investors? Can you have investors, or maybe, I uh, mean, not on Shark Tank, but say, just VCs? Yep. Can you have them sign a non-disclosure agreement? Sure. You, sure. Would that be a way around? Yeah. Yeah, that's a way around. Here's, your, here's a scenario that arises fairly frequently. You want to pitch it, as a as question in the room suggested. You want to pitch it before you invest money in it. You don't want to spend the money for the patent application. But you don't want to blow your patent rights either. So what are your options? I'll, I'll range them from ideal to least most ideal to least ideal. Most ideal, before you pitch it, file the patent application. It's the best. It's also the best because, not just for protection of patent rights, it avoids who knew what when type of arguments. And Here's what those are. You go to VC, you tell them about your great invention and VC says, yeah we already knew that. And actually you got it from us. You can't use it. If you have a patent application on file before you went, it's independent evidence of what you knew before you went. But not always possible. Not always practical. So, patent applications, that's one. A second would be a non disclosure agreement. Ask the party to whom you're pitching to sign an agreement, could be called a confidentiality agreement, non disclosure agreement. It basically has a term that says we agree that the information I'm going to share with you is to be kept secret and is to not be used by you for any purpose other than evaluating whether we work together. I, I was just <laughs> I was just going to make the point. you can ask for it. It would be rare for the other party to sign it, unless both parties are fairly on the same level. Usually not. Colombia is a very sophisticated entity. Columbia and outside parties sign these agreements all the time. But if you are a solo entrepreneur or a small company, a VC is not going to sign it. Apple is not going to sign it for anyone. There are good reasons for it. But let's move on. Patent application, non-disclosure agreement, and let's say the worst. The worst. And sometimes this happens in life. You know, you've got to deal with life as it comes. You're at the meeting. You're at the pitch. And you haven't done any of those things. Like, oh my God, I haven't filed the patent. I don't have any agreements. I can't ask them for an oral agreement, they're they're going to think I'm a nut. What do you do to ensure your patent rights are not jeopardized? Here is your fail safe. When you make your pitch, you tell them all about the great advantages of your invention. My invention is the best thing ever. It's the best thing because it allows you to take care of the problem of what happens if the pizza maker didn't slice the pizza. Tell them about the advantages. But don't tell them what it is or how it does it, how it works. Talk about advantages. For example, if I were pitching this, I wouldn't show them the object, but I'd say, i got a new device. It will enhance the flavor of the pizza. And you're thinking to yourself, Jeff, how does this enhance the flavor? Well, I wouldn't say this to the VCs until he went further, but the, the argument goes, see these vents? These vents are very beneficial because in your classic package saver, the steam, the flavor of the pizza rises up and then gets trapped and there's irregular turbulent flow around this device. With this device, the steam rises up, permeates, and the flavor gets distributed uniformly in a regular flow. So I would say it's a device that enhances the flavor of the pizza and ensures consistent flavor throughout. And if I've whetted the VC's appetite, they'll say, I I want to know more. And that's your opportunity to say, happy to talk, but sign a non-disclosure agreement. All right. So we've already mentioned what you get if you have a patent. Uh, I haven't told you the term. The term is 20 years. The 20-year term runs from the filing date of the patent, not the issue date. If you're on your toes, you'll be thinking, Yep, that doesn't make any sense because I don't have any rights until it issues. So why is my term running from my filing date? It's an excellent question. I'd be happy to discuss it offline. There's a very good legal reason for it. Suffice to say, your 20 years runs from your filing date. So all the time you spend in the patent office, you're just eating up your own patent term. I mentioned it is the right to prevent, and let me dispel one other myth. There is no such thing as an international patent. There are international patent applications, but there is no international patent right. Patents are country specific. This patent is a US patent. It will cover activities that have a hook to the US. You have to make it in the US, use it in the US, sell it in the US, offer it for sale in the US, or import it into the US. There are other rights, but they all have to have a hook in the US. So for example, If you are making this object offshore and selling it offshore, this patent is worthless. Patents are country specific. This patent covers the U.S., Canadian patents cover Canada, Japanese patents cover Japan. Keep in mind though, if you make it offshore and import it into the U.S., this patent will cover the importation activity. Any questions about that? Okay, so what happens after we file our provisional? Our provisional creates a one-year clock and that one-year clock gives us time to think about what to do next. Here's one way you can use it. You file your patent before you go to pitch it to the sharks or the VCs or what have you and you see what happens. Hey, are people interested? Great. Go to the next step of the patent process. Are they not interested? no interest. You know what? And I actually, I don't have much interest in myself. I don't really know how to start a company. I don't know how I would actually get this product made. Forget it. You can just let your application go abandoned. It will be completely confidential. But if you do decide to go to the next step, by the end of the year, you have to file what's called a non-provisional patent application. It's a full application. It will have content just like this. It can be a very expensive. Roughly speaking, if a provisional is going to cost you on the order of 1,000, a, a non-provisional is going to cost you on the order of 10 times as much. 10,000 would not be unreasonable. 30,000 would not be unheard of. It's a very long process. A long process because of examination. An examiner has to review it. It has to work with you to determine whether you are patentable. And what's happening in that time period? It's called examination. If you look in the front cover, you see there's a primary an examiner and an assistant examiner. These are the experts at the patent office who are reading your application and determining whether you satisfy the tests. And what are the tests? There are some tests for the text other than the claims. We call the text other than the claims a specification. And then we have drawings. So the examiner's reading those and is determining, do those enable the invention? Here's how to think about enablement. A patent is an incentive. It's an incentive to inventors to invent. The government says to inventors, we want solutions to problems. If you give us solutions that satisfy our tests, we will give you essentially a monopoly right. A legal right to exclude competition for 20 years. But you have to satisfy all the tests. And one of the tests is enablement. You have to teach someone of skill in the art how to make and use this invention using no more than routine experimentation. Teach us how to do it. Because at the end of 20 years, when your patent is expired, we have to be able to make it and use it using this document and no more than routine experimentation. It's part of the trade. We paid for it, so we should be able to make it and use it based on this document after the term is expired. Best mode is very similar. but goes a step further. It says you have to tell us when you file your patent application of the best way that you know of practicing your invention, the best way you know of making it and using it. It's like a recipe. You can't keep out the key details because we've already paid for it. We paid for it with a 20-year term. That's very boring, I can tell you. Oh, as a patent attorney, that's the boring stuff. The more exciting stuff, and all of this stuff is usually satisfied in the detailed description. Remember we went through the text, I said throw away the field of the invention, throw away the background. Throw away the summary, pause in the brief description. Detailed description. This is where the enablement test has to be satisfied. And the best mode test. There's another test as well. I'm not going to mention it. We come now to the more interesting test. These are the tests of the claims. Your claims have to pass three tests. They have to be useful, novel, and non-obvious. Useful should be pretty straightforward. An invention is a solution to a problem that works for its intended purpose. doesn't have to work well. The claims have to describe a useful invention. Pretty trivial. Things that will never pass this test are things that can never work. Time machines can never work. Don't claim them. They're not going to pass the utility prompt. Other classic example, perpetual motion machines applicants still submit patent applications for perpetual motion machines. They can't work. They violate the laws of physics and the laws of thermodynamics. So invariably what the examiner says, you know what bring that in. I want to see it in my office. Let's take a look at that perpetual motion machine. Rejected fails utility. Utility is also in the world of patenting fairly boring. The more exciting aspects are novelty and non-obviousness. Here's what we mean by novelty. The patent system is an incentive system. We are looking for solutions that are new. Don't give us solutions that are old. The examiner will do a search of what is called the prior art. Prior art is a collection of all the world's knowledge that was publicly accessible before you filed. And the examiner will compare your claim to the prior art and will ask, is your claim new? If your claim is the same as something else that already exists, you do not get a patent because you fail novelty. Novelty is a same-as test. It's pretty rigorous. It's also pretty easy to get around. You're going to say to yourself, well, how do you get around it? It's okay. I got a hypo. We will go through it. Anywhere in the world, in in any language, as long as it was publicly accessible. So it could be a thesis written in Chinese in some library in the outermost reaches of China. As long as that thesis was cataloged and was potentially accessible to a member of the public walking in that library, it is prior art. So novelty. Same as, should make sense philosophically. We're giving you a 20-year monopoly. Give us something new for it. Non-obviousness goes a step further. If novelty asks, are there differences? Non-obviousness asks, what kind of differences? How significant are those differences? Are you epsilon away from what's been done before? Or are you a great leap away from what's been done before? I'm not going to be able in this presentation to make you satisfied with non-obviousness. It's really challenging because it's so susceptible to hindsight reasoning. What's hindsight reasoning? It's this. You ever have a set of homework problems, couldn't figure them out, but as soon as you saw the solutions you said to yourself, oh yeah, I could have gotten that. Well of course. Once I tell you the answers to your homework, it's obvious. This is the problem with non-obviousness. Once someone presents you with an invention, a solution to a problem, that solution is susceptible to being obvious in your mind. It's like, well, of course you would use a tripod to prevent the top of the box from coming in contact with the cheese. Well, maybe, but no one came up with it before, so it couldn't have been that obvious. Leave it there for now. Novelty, same as. Are there differences? Non-obviousness asks what kind of differences, how significant. What should we think about before filing? We already talked about timing. Those are the time bars, the patent clocks. I'm going to skip ownership and I'm also going to skip money and value, except to note again, this can be a very expensive process. You're talking at least $1,000 to file a provisional, potentially $10,000 for the non-provisional. These are numbers for attorney time and it can get much more expensive. Because what happens during the course of this examination is the examiner invariably reads your claims and rejects them. The examiner says, I reject these claims because they are the same as reference one, two, three. Reference is another patent term, it just means something else that publicly exists. And if they're not the same as reference one, two, three, they're obvious over it. Examiners get to play those sorts of games. You lose this way and that way. Every time the examiner does that, you have to put together a reply. You have to argue with the examiner. You have to say, I think you've misunderstood the references. They don't show that. And or change your claims. That reply costs money because you're hiring an attorney to do it for you. In rough numbers. Just to give you a ballpark sense, a patent like this, probably cost on the order of fifty dollars to $100,000 on a Halloween portable container that I'm sure none of us has ever seen. This is a vanity patent. Think about what you could have done with the fifty dollars to $100,000. could have gotten a really nice piece of art. Instead, you've got this document, which is not very attractive to look at. Okay, hypos. Going to make everything all clear, hopefully. Inventors always have two questions. Am I going to get a patent on my invention? And are they ripping me off? Am I going to get a patent on my invention depends upon differences. Evaluate your differences between your invention and the prior art. And I'm going to do something for you that's going to be very important as you go through life with inventions. When you hear the word invention, hear solution to problem, And when you hear the word patent, always think claims. What are the claims? Do not fall into the trap of thinking patents are just patents. They're all equal. Every patent has a set of claims and the claims will determine how meaningful this patent is. So will you get a patent on your invention? You have to look at your claims and the prior art. Are you being ripped off? Look at your claims and the product that is being sold. Let's go through the example. Remember, we are the inventor of this fabulous device. This is us right here. We want to know are we going to get a patent on it and might we have some problems if we try to make it and sell it. Are we going to get a patent on it? Well, we have to write a claim for it. The claim we're going to write looks something like on the right. A lot of ways to write claims, but they all kind of sort of look like this. They have what's called a preamble and a transitional word. That's the first sentence. The transitional word is the gerund. In this case, it's comprising. Comprising is a transition word. It means includes. The preamble is what goes before the transition, a lid support. Here's a way, another way, to read this claim. My invention is a lid support that includes at least the following parts. Platform, three support legs, and a serrated edge connected to one of the support legs. If you are making an object that includes at least these parts, you are practicing my invention. It's an open set. So if you're making an object that includes these parts plus something else, you are making my invention. Does make sense? Open set. This is typically how you write claims. So we ask ourselves, is this invention patentable over the prior art? Let's imagine the examiner has done a search. And the only relevant prior art the examiner has found is this object, which we will assume exists before you. Is your claim novel? Hmm. Well, let's see. Let's do a side by side comparison. I claim a lid support. Preamble usually doesn't matter because I could have called it whatever I wanted. I could have called it the world's best invention ever. I could have called it my magical invention for slicing pizza. Examiner's not going to give it any weight, but regardless, that object is a lid support. That object has a platform. Same. That object has three support legs. Same. Ooh, and a serrated edge connected to one of the support legs. Well, that object doesn't have a serrated edge. I have a difference, I pass the novelty test, I pass novelty. I've already passed utility because we know it does a function that's useful, so i pass utility, I've passed novelty. How do I get over obviousness? Well, I get over obviousness because there's no serrated edge here. There's no way to come up with it. The examiner doesn't have it in front of him. This invention is not obvious. The type of argument an examiner would make would go something like this. He would have a combination of this object with a plastic knife having a serrated edge. And the examiner would argue one of skill in the art would be motivated to combine this object with the serrated edge of the plastic knife because the combination would be very useful for slicing pizza. That's an examiner style argument. It's a bunch of baloney because the examiner has to point to some reason why someone of skill in the art would make the combination. (coughs) See how it gets easy for hindsight reasoning? Well, I just take this and the serrated edge from a plastic knife and I get your invention. That's true, but someone had to identify the reason for putting them together. It's not enough to say putting them together is it. What's the reason to put them together? Let's assume we convince the examiner and we're patentable. So we are going to get a patent on that claim. Remember, claims are critical. Next time you hear a shark ask, do you have a patent? Be thinking, what are the claims? What could possibly be the claims on that? Go to the next part of the hypo. You're the owner of the product on the right, you want to make and sell them. You're going to build your factory, you're going to hire the raw materials, you're going to get the machinery, you're going to hire the personnel, you're going to be pumping these things out by the hundreds of thousands, you're going to be flooding the market with them because you want to get one in every pizza box in every city of the world. Because even if it's only worth a tenth of a cent or a hundredth of a cent, you have a big enough volume, you're going to be extremely wealthy. But you remember this presentation and you remember Jeff said something that made no sense. Probably still doesn't make any sense, but we're going to make it clear. He said a patent is a right to prevent. It is not a right to make. If you have this patent, you have the right to prevent anyone else from making, using, selling, offering to sell, or importing whatever is claimed. It Doesn't mean you have the right to do it. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Remember, you're patented. So you ask your patent attorney, what's Jeff talking about? He says, oh, we need to do a different type of search. We need to do what we call a clearance search. We want to find out if you make your object, will you be stepping on anybody else's claims? Are there any claims out there that you'll be infringing because you're making an object that is exactly the same as those claims. Your attorney does the search and says remember that prior object? Well, It turns out it's actually patented and this is the patent claim that it has. This is a patent claim. A package saver comprising a platform and three support legs. Remember how we read claims. You can read this as the following. My invention is a package saver that includes at least the following parts. You can add anything else you want. I don't care. That's mine. So what happens? Well, let's see. Is this object a package saver? Again, doesn't really matter what the preamble is, but it is a package saver, so that limitation is satisfied. And when I say limitation or feature, Let's just think of it like each line of the patent, each indented paragraph. Does this object have a platform? It has a platform. Does this object have three support legs? It has three support legs. That means every time this object is made, it is ripping off this patent. It's infringing it. Not allowed. The owner of this patent can prevent that activity. And you say to yourself, but wait, Jeff, wait, come on, you've got to be making this up. We're patented. Well, you're right. You're patented. All the Patent Office determines is whether your claims are useful, novel, and non-obvious. They do not determine whether you have the right to make the object covered by those claims. It's a different analysis. This scenario is very common. It's very common. New and improved is patentable over, when you hear patentable over, that's another legal shorthand for novel and non-obvious over, old and yucky. It's patentable over, old and yucky, it's new and better. But new and improved cannot be made without infringing the old and yucky patent. Because here's how the patent system works. If you're the first one in, There's not much prior art. Imagine you were the first one to make one of these. My God, there'd be no prior art. There'd be nothing. You could have the broadest claim ever. Huge. This is a huge claim. Huge. Everyone after you has to be narrower. That's the way the patent system works. So, yes. Uh, uh, for if you filed with the first one, at least I would have changed like at, I would say a platform and at least three support legs so we we'll prevent any admissions ben- that we'd have of four next. Yeah, you're right. So, so it's so that that would be new. But uh, yeah. consider that this is what it is. Can we when we filed So that we'll, you know, we we'll, we'll, we'll end up not uh, at risk of <coughs> So here's the way it typically works. So, <laughs> well, it's a great question. You're thinking about it the way a patent attorney would think. So I say three. As patent attorneys, we would write at least three, but it really doesn't matter. And here's why it doesn't matter. If you're making an object with four legs, you've definitely made an object that has three legs. Because you had to make three <laughs> legs before you got to the fourth. <laughs> but you're thinking about it right. The way to get around it is to make this with two legs. Oh. Or how about no legs at all? How about a support <laughs> that's like a pyramid? So you so have to think less. Less, yes. No if you want to. You you exactly, exactly. If you want to get around this claim for purposes of infringement, if you want to steer clear of it, you have to not be doing something that's in it. So if you're making a platform, well, you can't get rid of that. You could do fewer support legs or you could do an entirely different support structure or you could just ignore the serrated edge or perform the function in some very different way. Maybe it's a tiny pair of scissors. That's what we do with claims to get around them. Are we doing exactly the same? If we're doing exactly the same, is there something we don't have to do? Can we do less? Can we do the function in another way? All right, it says three support legs. It doesn't say a support structure. I'm not going to use legs. I'll use a tube. Just one in the middle. It's what makes the patent attorney's job very hard and it's why claims are so important. The claims define the scope of your invention. Your question is really well taken. It's really well taken because this claim might look really broad on its face, and it is, but it could have been done better because the support legs this requires a particular support structure. It has to be legged. It has to be multi-pronged. So any way around it is a tubular structure or a pyramidal structure or some, why not just, shucks, I'll just make it a big, uh, like a paper towel holder. That's it. That's my package saver. Doesn't infringe that. Carries out exactly the same function. A patent attorney's job is hard because when you write claims, you have to think about two things. You have a very narrow path, very narrow. I have to define myself over the art. As more patent speak. I do it all the time. Define yourself over the art. Here's what that means. I have to make sure that my claims are new and non-obvious over anything else that's been publicly accessible. I must do at least that. If I don't do that, I'm not going to get a patent. So I always have to have something new. But I don't want to be so narrowly defined that I can be easily avoided. So we like to say in the patent space, I want a claim that is as broad as the prior art will allow. If the prior art comes up to here, I want my claim to start right next to it. I don't want it to start three miles away because all of that middle ground is ways to get around my claim. Does the right to prevent make sense now? Do you understand it? Very important. And here's something to keep in mind when you watch that Shark Tank episode. The sharks never ask about the claims. They always ask, do you have a patent? Think about the next time you see this Shark Tank and you see one of the entrepreneurs come up and they have a patent, go and look for that patent. It's not hard. You can do a keyword search on the object or just look at the company's name in Google and then search on patents that are owned by that company. It's not very hard either. You can do that in Google, you can do that at the USPTO site. Pull up the patent. I'm going to give you a handy tip. Handy tip. See, this claim has very few words. There are very few ways to get around it. There's only one. You have to have a different support structure. It's the only way to get around it. This claim, there are two ways to get around it. Different support structure or get rid of the serrated edge or perform the function in a different way. The longer a claim gets in words, the less commercial value it has because there are more ways to design around it. If a claim has elements A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I've got eight ways I can possibly get around that claim. I don't have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or H. If I can drop any one of those, I'm home free. Or if I can do any one of those differently, I'm home free. A claim says A and B, it's going to be a lot harder. So here's a general rule. The longer a claim is in terms of words, the less its value. If you see a claim that is half a column long, it's total garbage. And you will see claims that are columns, columns long, total junk. So the next time you watch Shark Tank, just ask yourself, I wonder what that patent is? I wonder about it. Look it up. And don't be surprised if it's total garbage because the sharks don't go to that next step. Uh, Let <clears throat> me just give you a couple of ways out of this box, new and improved versus old and yucky. A couple of ways out. One of the ways out is business. The owners of the respective patents approach each other and they make a deal. Old and Yucky says to New and Improved, look, we know I can prevent you from making your product. I have a patent right that blocks you. And New and Improved says, well, Old and Yucky, you can't make my product either because I have a patent that blocks that. So they both agree, you know what, let's license each other. We will give each other permission to practice our respective patents. License each other is another way of saying we will agree not to sue each other if we infringe our respective patents. So, old and yucky goes off and makes new and improved product, and new and improved goes off and makes new and improved product. That's a scenario. Or another scenario is old and yucky says, New and improved, I will agree not to sue you on my patent if you pay me a royalty. Pay me. of your profits, and I'll agree not to sue you. That's a transaction, happens all the time. It's a license. But also something that happens all the time is a deal can't be reached. Old and yucky says there is no way I'm going to allow you to practice my patent because then no one's going to buy my product. You're going to put me out of business. So no, I'm not giving you permission. And new and improved goes off and makes the product anyway and old and yucky sues, new and improved, for patent infringement. This is a very expensive game, costing on the order of $100,000 a month in lawyer fees. Each side will pay roughly $100,000 a month in legal fees for every month the case is before a judge. And remember we joked two and a half years, that's lightning fast for the Patent Office. Judges don't do anything in two and a half years. They have lifetime tenure. Cases go on forever. Five years, seven years, ten years. And you're burning through 100 grand a month on a good month. Think about it. You really have to ask yourself, if you're a startup, why are you getting into this game? What's the end goal? Don't fool yourself into thinking the patent in and of itself has value, it has none. You have to have something behind it. You have to be able to use it. So, parting notes. Your deadlines. If you remember nothing else from this presentation, please remember things you do can jeopardize your right to file a patent. So here's my handy tip. If you have interesting research results, Something that you didn't expect. Something that was surprising. Something that might have been hard to figure out. And you're not sure whether it's patentable. I don't know. I don't know if someone did it before. I don't know if it's novel or non-obvious. If you're not sure whether it's worth patenting. Jeff said it's a hundred grand. I don't know how we would make a business out of this. If you're not sure, talk to someone who knows. If you talk to me, you could approach the CTV office. We are both free resources to anyone at Columbia. We will help you figure it out, and we will help you file a patent. That's very easy. We can do that before you communicate your results publicly. So all your rights are protected. There are no backsees. There are no retros. There are no do-overs. There's no, well, we're just going to ignore that. That doesn't happen. Can't happen. A lot of good legal reasons why it doesn't work. I can't put the cat back in the bag. The best I can do is take action before the cat comes out. And as you go on to your careers outside of Columbia, always keep in mind this is a commercial asset. It costs real money. Think about why you are investing in it. What is the plan? You can only do three things with it. Sell it, license it, use it, as a leverage to start your new company. If it's not one of those three things, you probably should not be doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.